Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active word of God, his two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, March 10th, we're studying Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. On the heels of the challenge from the Jerusalem religious leaders, Jesus tells a parable concerning his upcoming rejection and death at their hands that will lead to his resurrection and exaltation as the cornerstone. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Sean Linnell. Pastor Linnell serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Blair, Nebraska. Pastor Linnell, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Good morning. Always a pleasure to be here. As we get started this morning, Pastor Linnell, let's talk context. Where are we in Mark's Gospel? What do we need to know going into this text today? Yeah, so again, we're, uh, of course, in Mark 12, we're just following where the authority of Jesus is, has been challenged, and he is... Uh, really experiencing a lot of uh, different uh, you know, challenges, different kind of uh, times when the, the Pharisees or the, you know, the priests are coming up and trying to, are trying to get him. Uh, he's already sort of entered, uh, you know, Jerusalem with his, you know, his triumphant or triumphal entry. And um, if you, if you remember perhaps from uh, some of the other gospels, like in John, this is, this is about when, uh, when the the council decides uh, pretty openly that they should they should probably kill Jesus now, and so uh, the the level the level of we don't like you is pretty high around this time. Now uh, again, some of these things in the gospels sometimes when a gospel writer puts a thing in there. Uh, they they're not putting everything in chronological order. And this this is really difficult for people like us who come from a Western tradition where stories are always told in the order that that things happen. And it's why a lot of times we get um, uh, really excited or we, we find stories that that have sort of like twist endings or something like that to be really exciting because they subvert our expectations. But for for people in Eastern cultures, a lot of times. Uh, the timeline of events is is not always necessarily the point of the story. And so when you read the Gospels, just be aware that it's not really a problem for them if things aren't always put in the same order. But it's put here by Mark for a reason, because it addresses specifically how Jesus um, goes about talking to these religious leaders and uh, in, in a certain sense, uh, professing or uh, prophesying of what's going to happen to him in the future. And so it's placed here because this parable specifically addresses those religious leaders. Um, and it shows a pattern of behavior of rejection of God's servants, and then ultimately the rejection of the son himself. And so, um, so that's that's primarily why it's here is that it 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 serves as a foretelling of Jesus's uh, Jesus's death at their hands. Looking at the the previous text where Jesus was confronted by those religious leaders and they questioned him about his authority and Jesus you know said well you you tell me about John and if you tell me about John then I'll tell you about me they of course refused to say anything and so he says at the very end of the previous text you know I'm not going to tell you either by what authority I do these things and then he starts speaking in parables in this particular text is there is there something to that is there something in this parable that addresses Jesus authority in, you know, in a way that maybe the, it's not a direct answer to their question, but it's, it's related. What do you think? You mean like when he says, and then the master shall send his son, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Right. Yes. I mean, it's, it's definitely, uh, it's definitely like that. Right. And, and the thing is, and this is also, I think kind of um, pretty, pretty obvious sort of in the parable. It's not like the vine growers don't know where these people are coming from. Right. Mm. It's not, they're like, ah, some random guy shows up off the street <laughs> and he says that this vineyard belongs to him. Why don't we beat him up and send him on his way? Right. No, no, no. They, they knew who he was from, you know? And so in the same way, 
Jesus in his question and his address to them just prior to this, he's like, all right, where was John from? And they're like, we don't want to, we don't want to answer that question. And he's like, yeah, you know, they know it's not something where there was like this big misunderstanding. Right. And see, this is, this is one of those things where I'm going to end up off on tangents. Um, <laughs> but I, I find this as a, a really uh, entertaining, at least to me, argument a lot of times is so I'll be, I'll be having a conversation with somebody. And um, uh, so I was like, I was talking with these, uh, these Jehovah's witnesses one time they came to my door, they were really friendly and I invited them in. We had a donut and coffee and they were like, one of their big things is that they don't, they don't think that Jesus is God, right? They, think that Jesus is the first of all creative beings, Archangel Michael, something like that. And I said, okay, well, let's, let's look at the Bible. And so in the Bible there, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And, and that is him claiming to be God. And they're like, no, no, that's not him claiming to be God. And I was like, oh, okay. So when the Pharisees get mad and they, they go to kill him because he claimed to be God, you think that they were right. They just misunderstood him. And they're like, well, that makes us uncomfortable. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. Anytime that you agree with the Pharisees, that should make you uncomfortable. The Pharisees, they're, they're not hypocrites because they weren't doing the things that they were saying. And they're not misunderstanding Jesus. Like they, they fully get it. They were religious people out doing their own religious law stuff. They fully understood what everything was supposed to be, and they didn't do it. And that's kind of what is here in this parable, right? They get it. They know. In fact, the Pharisees oftentimes know better, or at least understand better, than Jesus' own disciples. And yet they reject him anyway. With that then, so that we don't go down too far a tangent, let's read the text and start talking about this parable that Jesus tells. Mark chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. And he, Jesus, began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. That's the text for today. Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. Pastor Linnell, let's start by talking a little bit of Old Testament background. A man planted a vineyard. What's the Old Testament background for the imagery that's in this parable of the vineyard? So the vineyard theme is taken right out of, of Isaiah 5. You know, uh, The vineyard has, has always been, um, even, even before it was perhaps uh, stated quite so clearly, uh, an image of a reference to God's kingdom and God's people. You have this even all the way back in, uh, in uh, like uh, with Noah, right? And so what you end up having is Noah gets off the boat and the first thing that he does is he plants a vineyard. You know, there's, there's imagery associated with this. And that imagery points us to, uh, to God's kingdom and to God's people. So again, in Isaiah 5, you have this, and it, it follows pretty closely, right? There's a vineyard that's planted, there's walls that are set up, there's guard towers and wine presses. And, and so Jesus is using this imagery that is really super obvious. Uh, in fact, most of this parable is uh, pretty blunt and aggressive in its imagery. And so when Jesus is, is presenting this, the vineyard 
theme, the vineyard imagery comes out of Isaiah 5. But there's a, a little bit of difference in that uh, in here, when he's talking about this vineyard, uh, the the parable doesn't seem to focus on uh, the productivity of the vineyard or how much fruit the vineyard yields or anything like that. But it follows and it focuses on the actions of the the vine growers. And this is going to be sort of the big difference between the imagery in Isaiah 5 and the imagery here, is that in the Old Testament, the prophet was talking about the vineyard bearing fruit. And in here, it's really talking about the relationship of the of the tenants. Hmm. Uh, still, oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, you know, I mean, previously in Mark chapter 11, Jesus cursed that fig tree. And granted, I know a fig tree is not, not a vine, but there the image was the fruit. Now he's he is switching here to the to the tenants. Keep, keep going. Yeah. Well, and, and again, a lot of times I think we, we will do this. We'll, we'll take pieces of scripture that we, we want to sort of support our point. And it, there are scripture passages that will do that, but maybe not this one. And so again, if you're looking for Jesus saying that there needs to be, you know, fruit from his people and repentance, like, yeah, you can look at the fig tree. Um, if you if you want to see him, you know, weeping over Jerusalem, you know, maybe that's a better passage. But in, in this one, he's really focusing a whole lot more on the religious rulers, the people that are in charge of Israel. Um, and again, there's there's lots of passages like that. So a lot of people will point to, say, John 3, 16, and they'd be like, oh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You see, God loves us so much that he gave his only son. That's not what that passage is for. That passage there, it's it's not so as in so much, it's so as in thusly. God loved the world in this way that he gave his only begotten son. But of course, he did love it so much. It's just, it would be so much better if you went to greater love has no one than this, than he laid down his life for his friends, right? And so in, in this particular case here, the focus is on the uh, the tenants, the, the vine growers, and the religious rulers of Israel and how they're not doing their job and how they're going to come at Jesus and, and kill him. And this also is something that we'll see, like, when you hear, when you hear the law, right, when, you, when your pastor is preaching to you and you hear the law, sometimes the law is, you did bad, yeah? Sometimes the law is, we are crushed and enslaved and we need help. Yeah. And and that really just sort of goes with the, the text. And in this particular case, if you are a religious leader of Israel, you are hearing the law as you did bad. And if you are not a religious leader of Israel, then the law is we are we are enslaved to, you know, to a broken world, a broken system, to sin, to death. And we need somebody to come and rescue us and set us free. So, so that's what's going on here, and that's why those things are, are different. But I, again, even as Jesus is criticizing the tenants, though, the, the thing is, is he's not criticizing the tenants for their mismanagement of the vineyard. Even here, yeah, you've got these bad tenants, but he's not saying, oh, you are bad tenants because the vineyard isn't producing enough fruit. Right. And we've seen that in other places. So Jesus will hand one of his servants a couple of talents and then he'll come back and then there's no there's no extra talents. And he's like, ah, man, you didn't I left you with this and you didn't you didn't manage it well. But that's that's not actually what's going on here in this parable. Instead of being criticized for their management of the vineyard, his criticism is is based on their relationship to the owner himself, not specifically their actions as they worked for the owner. And that's kind of interesting, right? Because in the parable, you see really two different groups of people. You see a big difference between the vine growers and the slaves, or in our most of our English translations, it probably says servants, right? Um, but the word here is slave. It's, it's doulos and, or douloi. And then in here... Um, the Georgoi, who are the vineyard or the vine grower, the vine growers, excuse me. And so there's this this difference between these vine growers and these slaves. And there's a lot of stuff that happens, but the first thing we want to look at is the relationship that each of them has to the owner. 
and how that influences our understanding of what's going on. So without making too much of it, I think generally we would see it as kind of a positive thing that God would call you a vine grower rather than a slave. We, we have a lot of negative sort of feelings and connotations about that. But with God, we, we would rather be doorkeepers in his house than dwell in the tents of the wicked. And the thing about slavery is that when you're a slave, you have no autonomy. You have no individual sort of identity. Your, your humanity is, is taken away in, in a certain sense. And that's, that dehumanizing aspect of it is why we consider slavery, at least between people, to be so evil. But with God, it's different. Because with God, losing our humanity, or at least that broken and sinful part of it, is actually a good thing. It's what we want. We, we don't want to be identified as ourselves, as individuals. We, we want to be so closely identified with our master that, that you can't make any distinctions here. And so these slaves, as they come, these, these slaves are, well, they're, they're Old Testament prophets. And in the Old Testament, when a prophet was sent to Israel, God himself was coming to you. Like there wasn't, oh, this is the prophet, and then here's God over here. When, when the prophet came to you, God came to you. When the prophet talked to you, God talked to you. When, when you mistreated a prophet, when you rejected a prophet, you were, you were rejecting God himself. And so, so as we approach this parable, these are the, the things we need to keep in mind, right? It's, yeah, it is about the actions of the vine growers. But it's a whole lot more about their their relationship with and the message that they're sending to the owner. And you can see that pretty clearly in the way that they treat the slaves, because there is not a distinction between the slave and the owner or the slave and the master, because that's the nature of what it means to be a slave. So, uh, all right. So the, the main thing that we want to pay attention to about these vine growers is that they have the wrong relationship with the master. And that's seen in their, in their mistreatment of the various slaves that come. What, I mean, what about the, the relation? I mean, I guess dig into that a little bit more as to how we see that, that difference. If we're going to compare those two groups, the slave servants, the, the vine growers, What's the what's the positive relationship that the slave servants have that the the vine growers that they don't? Yeah. So again, let's lean into that a, a little bit about why does a slave do the things that he does? The master told so, him to. Right. Um, and why does why does that have any effect on him? Like why why should he care? Why does a slave have to do the things that the master says? Uh, because, because he's a slave. Because he's a slave, yeah. Yeah. And so his actions, his actions are a product of who he is. The slave is not a slave because he does slave things. The slave does slave things because he is a slave. Yeah. And so in this case, you have these vine growers. And the vine growers, they have a relationship with the owner. And whether we call them tenants or we call them whatever, that, that relationship, it's, it's, not, it's not the case that they're going to, to do things in, in an effort to try to be you know, one way or another. But they are a certain way, and that's why they do the things. And so we, would, we might say, I might say, as I'm hearing this, oh, man. You know, these are vine growers. These over here are slaves. God respects these vine growers. He sees them in, in some sort of way as, you know, I don't know, more autonomous or something than, you know, than slaves. It's, it's not exactly like he's treating them as peers, but he's treating them as a little, you know, with a little bit of respect, you know, he's because they're kind of autonomous in this regard. I mean, yeah, but that's not that's not very exciting to a Christian. That's that's not where we want to be. You know, that's, that's where we want to be sort of as, as, you know, human beings and relating with one another. But, but with God, I, I want to be a slave. I want to, to, to have as my identity, the assumption that I'm going to do the things God says, because that's who I am. 
Like there's no question. There's no negotiating. There's, there's nothing like that. It's a product of who I am. And this is, this is something that Jesus says in other places, right? He talks about a good tree bearing good fruit and a bad tree bearing bad fruit. You bear bad fruit because you're a bad tree. You bear good fruit because you're a good tree. You're not a good tree because you bear good fruit. That's backwards. And so here in this case and in this parable, what you see is, again, the, the slaves are doing the things because of who they are. And when the vineyard or the vine growers are doing the things, it reveals who they are. And who they are and their relationship to the owner isn't, isn't actually tenants, like not in any sort of good way. But it's, it's much worse than that. It's much darker than that. And the parable itself is actually really straightforward and brutal and kind of kind of blunt, right? So as we go through, it says, When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get some of the fruit from the vineyard. And they took him and they beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Yeah. See that word beat? That's a really soft word. They beat him. Okay. Well, well, the word is actually uh, a dayron. And the word adairon means flayed. Mm. And for those who don't know what flayed means, it means that they peel the skin off of you. So they peeled the skin off of this servant and how much of the skin or whatever, it doesn't matter. The word evokes a visceral sort of horror at how violent and bloody that is. It's over the top for this kind of a parable. But there's a reason for that. There's a reason that it's so it's so bloody and that it's so so brutal, um, and the the reason for that is because you know Jesus is is looking right at these religious rulers. I think a lot of times we'll we'll see the parables and Jesus is like, oh man, he's he's weaving together some really subtle things, and that's why people don't understand. You know, it's because his language is no, no. This this one is really hitting it on the head in a in a blunt and obvious way. So they, they flay the guy and then send him back. And another, the next one that they come in, like they, they beat him over the head, right? They crack his skull open. Like he's, he's got a, a skull fracture and he's bleeding and then, they, and then they send him away. They're incredibly brutal when they do this. Why are they so brutal when they do this? What is the point of their brutality? I would say, I mean, given the, the line that you're drawing here, it's because of they hate the master ultimately or they hate the, the owner. Right. And that's, that is sort of the point. Um, and you, you see this in, in other things. So um, if you, if you were to go to a place where, where they had lots of criminal gang activity and you do something wrong, they could just kill you. Right. That's, mm -hmm. that's a pretty common thing. But if you do something and they really don't like it, like maybe you're a snitch. Yeah. They're not just going to kill you. They're going to send a message. And the way that they send a message is by being over the top, brutal, grotesque in their treatment of you. And, and they do that in other places. And it's absolutely horrifying. And the point of that is to send a message. And that's not me like, you know, making stuff up or, or pulling things out of the text. That's, that's exactly what they say. They beat him and they sent him away empty handed. Well, sent him away where? Sent him away back to the master. And their treatment of him was meant to be a message. And the message is, we'll do it to you. Don't come back. Mm. And yet he continues to send them and they continue to send the same message. So, you know, yeah, there's, there's lots of things. And I think that we, we are inclined a lot of times in our lives to look at the things that we're doing and to say, well, I did this thing and this thing was bad, or I did this thing and this thing was good. And that's all true, right? God gives us specific commands about specific things for a reason. But those are not just arbitrary commands that set off on their own. These, these things that we do are about our relationships. They're about our relationships with one another and our relationship with God. God gives us a list of things to do and not to do with respect to our neighbor. But those aren't just rules that he threw out there. Those are rules that govern our relationship with them. How do we look at our neighbor? How do we, how do we try to love them? And, and if they are our neighbor, then because they are our neighbor, how do, we, how do we treat them? How do we love them? 
And in the same sort of way, is God your God? Well, then what does that mean? If you are his slave, right? If you are his own, if you're his son in your baptism, what does that look like? So somebody say, well, well, do I need to come to church? I, I don't know. Are you, are you a Christian? Because you don't come to church to be a Christian. You're a Christian. And so you come to church. That's, that's what Christians do, you know? But we'll ask those questions backwards. Well, do I need to come to church in order to be a Christian? Do I need to come to church in order to believe in Jesus? Do I need to? No, that, that's the wrong question. The question is backwards, you know, or the same sort of thing. Well, Jesus teaches about uh, divorce in his, parable, or in his Sermon on the Mount. Does, does the Son of God need to come down out of heaven and be incarnate in order to tell us that divorce is bad? Like, that's nobody's goal. Like, nobody gets married and they're like, you know what I'd like in three years? I think I'd like to be divorced. That's my three-year plan. Nobody does that. But what he does in that explanation is he says, yeah, look, you guys are focusing on the rules for when it's okay to be divorced and when it's not okay to be divorced. But if you guys were looking at your neighbor and loving your neighbor more, you wouldn't need to ask that question. And that's, you know, he gives caveats and he gives exceptions to the rule. But generally speaking, if people were loving their neighbor in the way that they were supposed to, then you wouldn't really have the question about divorce, right? It's always a breakdown in the relationship of love somewhere. And so, so again, when we look at this parable, there is a lot going on. But if we forget about the relationship aspect, then, then what are we doing? There is, there is a relationship that we have with the Lord. And that relationship, that relationship flows out of who we are. And if we, if, we, um, if we see ourselves in our relationship with the Lord as his, his slaves, his servants, and also, and perhaps more importantly, as his children, as his sons, then the questions about do we have to do things or do we not have to do things, those questions change. And, and instead, it's not do I have to, but it's well, who am I? You know, who... who who, what does, what does this person that I claim that I am, what does that person do? And on the other hand, then we take a look at our actions and we say, is it okay for me to do these things? Well, no, no, it's not. Because that's not, that's not the relationship that I have with, with the Lord. Mm, yeah. And if I think that it's okay, then perhaps I should reevaluate that relationship. Right. It, it comes back to, I mean, it really, it comes back to the first commandment. Who is God? What does it mean to fear, love, and trust in him above all things? That relationship that you have with him governs everything. And it starts there with who you are in relation to God. And we're going to keep talking about that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFO. Got Pastor Sean Linnell talking about Mark 12. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, March 10th. We're studying Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. We have Pastor Sean Linnell with us. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Blair, Nebraska. Pastor Linnell, prior to the break, we were talking about really the first part of the parable where the man plants the vineyard. He takes great care of it. He's got these tenants, these slaves. Each of them has a, a different relationship to that master as is revealed by their actions and it does center in that relationship they have with the master just so that we make sure we have all the the nuts and bolts of this parable in place the tenants the slaves the master the vineyard what what are all these things what what historical reality is jesus describing in that first half of the parable so when jesus says that a man planted a vineyard and he put a fence around it he's talking about his people he's talking about uh, Israel. And the vineyard has 
longstanding been a way to reference God's people and God's kingdom. And then Israel, in this case, his people and really his nation. And the fence that he's dug around it, you can either see that as the law, the Old Testament uh, law of Moses that creates a separation between God's people and the Gentiles. You can see that geographically, the mountains of Lebanon to the north, the Mediterranean Sea to the west, and then the, the deserts uh, around Jerusalem to the west and to the south. He says that he put uh, a wine press and a tower and all of these things, references from Isaiah 5, and we could, we could go over you know, the pieces there, but it's all of the things that Israel has. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get some of the fruit from the vineyard. The servants or the slaves that the owner sends are the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, and the fruit that he wants from them or the fruit that he he has sent them to gather are the fruits of repentance. And of course, the tenants or the vine growers, those are the religious leaders of Israel. Uh, and they don't treat the prophets very well, as historically they did not. They they beat them, they they flay them, they you know hit them on the head, and another they killed. These descriptions are meant to be overly brutal and to be extremely blunt, and they are they are meant to evoke in the listener a response of sort of shock and terror at how violent these tenants and these vine growers are and how ridiculous it is that the owner continues to send servants. And the reason for that is because it reflects on how patient uh, and how, uh, in a sense, forgiving the owner is. Because when they mistreat the servants, they are sending a message to the owner And the owner doesn't respond to their message in the way that a normal human owner might. He responds, you could say, by giving them another chance, um, but but in in another way, perhaps ignoring their rebellion and ignoring their threats and just assuming that they're going to do the right thing, assuming that they... That, that they're not going to be this way. And so he continues to send these servants, even though they're killed. And then finally, he sent... Uh, he sent to them saying, they will respect my son. Now, Jesus is saying this, and this is where Jesus is referring to himself. Jesus doesn't just get to come right out and say, I'm God. This is about as close as he's going to get, though. And everybody understands exactly what he means. They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. That response seems kind of dumb, but but it's I don't know it's not um, their their whole idea here is and the the point is that these religious leaders they they don't actually care about the eternal kingdom or the spiritual kingdom they they only seem to care about being in charge right now. And so it's obvious that there will be consequences for the things in the future. But that's that's not what the religious leaders are looking at, and that's not what the tenants are looking at. The decision is a little jarring and confusing. Why would you think that that's going to turn out well for you? Well, sure. And you can ask the exact same thing about the religious leaders. Like, why do you, why do you think this is going to turn out well for you? But again, they only seem to be caring about temporal things, being in charge of what they're in charge of right now, and being very short-sighted. Mm-hmm. It's also a prophecy, a prophecy of how they're going to treat Jesus. And um, it's not, I mean, it is a prophecy, but it's also not a big secret. Because again, this is following the triumphal entry of Jesus. And if you remember from John 11, after Jesus is doing his whole thing, uh, the 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 council says uh, it's not good that a whole country should perish, but rather that one guy should die for it. And so they made plans to kill Jesus, and and that wasn't that wasn't big secret plans. Like everybody knew that, and so Jesus is is really calling them out on it, and they're right here to listen. 
And then uh, he gets to that question and he says, and, and so again, they, they do take him and kill him. They throw him out of the vineyard. But then he says, you know, what will the owner of the vineyard do? That's a rhetorical question. And it's, it's why, again, he doesn't really, he doesn't really wait for an answer because everybody knows. Everybody knows what the owner of the vineyard is going to do. They're surprised that he hasn't done it already in the way that they treated his servants. But now that they've killed his son, you can expect that the response of the master is not going to be uh, is not going to be a a, a, a nice one, mm. you know. And so, this is how Jesus responds. He says, "Have you not read this scripture?" The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Interesting um, that Mark doesn't include sort of the, the the next line to that about, you know, the stone and falling on and crushing people and everything else. But But the thing is, is that Jesus here is letting them know, uh, or at least calling to mind, that they already know. He's not really telling them anything new. They know what happened in the Old Testament. They know about the rejection of the prophets, and they know how that turned out for Israel. They go to synagogue all the time, and in synagogue, they hear these things. Have you not heard? Of course they've heard. That's In fact, that's all they hear. They've been taught all the time. Jesus is not telling them anything new. He's just showing up and fulfilling all the things that they've been hearing. Why are you, did you not know? You were a tenant. You were a vine grower. You pay rent. You signed a contract. Did you, did you not think that I was going to come and ask for some sort of fruit? Did you not think the rent was going to come due? I'm so confused as to why it is that, that you're confused. And so in the same way, he's like, you've read this. You, you, you did the thing, right? This is what you do. If, especially if you're a Pharisee, right? Like you're reading all the things. Or if you're a scribe, or not a scribe, if you're a Sadducee, like did you not think that sacrifices were important? That's sort of your job is the whole sacrifices. Did you really think that God wanted the blood of goats and bulls? Like did you not read the prophets where he said that if he was hungry, he wouldn't ask you? Like, this, isn't, this isn't hard stuff and it's not new. So Jesus goes through all of those things and then it says that they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people. And then this leads us into why it is that they enlist the help of Judas and they arrest him in the garden. But as you go through the parable, that's that's basically the straightforward presentation of all the pieces and all the things. Looking back into the parable, as we were talking on the first side of the break about the what the actions of the slaves reveal about their relationship to the master what the actions of the tenants, the vine growers reveal about their relationship to the master. What about the actions of the master himself? What do his actions reveal about what he thinks of, of both of those groups and just about him in general? What do his actions tell us about this, this master? Yeah. And it's, and it's, and well, and it's, it's that because obviously it, it, it talks about his relationship with, with those, those that do not arrange. So the slaves belong to him. They are his own. It's his responsibility to look out for them and for their well-being. They are in a sense his property. And not only that, but there, there shouldn't be a large distinction between the, the identity of the slave and the master themselves. And yet he sends out these slaves knowing full well that they're going to be brutalized, right? And not only that, but, and this, this probably gets to the heart of it better. He does the same thing with his own son. Mm. And so if, if there's ever going to be a relationship that, that we can perhaps relate to, at least emotionally, better, why would you send your son into the, what do you, what do you mean they're going to respect your son? Like, like, we know that the master here, the owner is God. So I don't, I don't want to like say, are you dumb? But are you dumb? No. No, they're not going to treat him well. And he sends out his son. And you have to, un- like, you have to assume that he knows what's going to happen, even though he, he says otherwise. But the son goes, and the master continues to send. And I think that that really says something about his relationship to them as the master. Because regardless of whether or not 
they are uh, seeing him as the master or seeing him as whatever. He is their master. And so he acts accordingly. Even if you reject him, even if you are his enemy, you might be his enemy, but he is still your master. And so you have the, those uneven actions. And God does the same for all of us. You know, he, even those people who don't believe in him, even those people who attack the church, even those people who reject him, who, who uh, attack Christians, he still loves them. And Jesus still came to die for them. And he still comes to them with his, with his word and calls out to them. Now, they reject those things. It's true. They won't receive the benefit of those things. But that doesn't change what he's done. And that should be a great comfort and a great hope to us. Because if you read this parable and you see this as, you know, uh, do these actions reap these rewards? Okay, I mean, that's, that's not wrong, but that is law, and law doesn't give us a lot of hope. But if you read and you see this parable as people act according to who they are, and the enemies of God act as if they're enemies of God because they're enemies of God, and the servants serve God because they're servants, what does God do? What does the master do? He's faithful and he is patient and he is merciful because he is your God and he is your master, regardless of what uh, you present to him. And I, and I find that to be incredibly hopeful. Very much so. I, I'm thinking through, um, where's it? First, is it first Timothy two or second Timothy two? We just read these on sharp iron. I should know which one it is where, where Paul talks about if he, oh, I'm going to try to find it now. Second Timothy two, where he says, if we've died with him, maybe did you and I even talk about this? Perhaps if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. But then this, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. I think, I mean, you really see a picture of God doing that in this parable. As you said, I mean, like, what, like, my sons, what, would I send my sons into a situation like that? Of course not. You know, would I, would I continue to send one servant after another after, after this message has been sent back to me over and over again? We hate you. We don't, we don't want anything to do with you. And if you continue, we're going to just keep doing this. I mean, of, of course not. But God remains faithful to who he is. And, and who he is, as you said, is, is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. What, what greater hope could there be than, than to see the character of God all the way into giving his son into death for the sake of us sinners? Yeah, and I'm I'm glad that you you know you bring up the Second Timothy passage because uh, every now and again uh, I I say things and I'm and I'm like man I really want to support this better and and then I'm and then you know Tim comes along and he helps me out. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was but the no, Apostle I, Paul who wrote that, but <laughs> that's right. but but no, I think that that's um, I think that's right, and it's and again when when I say these things or when when we say these things. It's not to gloss over the law. There, there is law in these parables, obviously, and there is law in these texts. The, the reason that I, I try to focus and bring out perhaps the, a little bit more gospel side to even a text that just seems very aggressive, because it is, um, is because we, we don't generally need help in seeing the law. Maybe seeing the law rightly, right? Uh, I mean, we might you know, see the law or do, but we're very law oriented beings. Um, and so even if we're making up our own law, or we're trying to justify ourselves. We're very, we're, I say we're comfortable, but, but our default position is to go back to a set of rules. Our default position is not to see a parable and to say, what does this tell me about who God is rather than what God wants from me? Um, and, and you need both. You, you need to see both. And so when we're, when we're taking a look at these parables, like there's this incredible indictment of the religious rulers, right? Which for me as a, as a pastor is always very intimidating. Um, but one of the other things that you see is how patient and, um, and how forgiving this master is throughout the entirety of the process, you know, and at the end, sure, Jesus says, what do you think he's going to do? But, 
But there's this interesting sort of thing that I don't think too many people talk about. So the heirs, they say, or not the heirs, the tenants, they say, we're going to kill the heir and inherit the vineyard. Like, that's a stupid assumption, right? Like, that would never happen, right? But that's exactly what happened. That's, that is exactly what happened. The son is killed. And it's because the son is killed that, that the, the kingdom or that the vineyard is, is inherited to us. And if the son is not killed this way, if the son is not murdered in this way, then, then, then do we ever become heirs with him? And the answer to that has to be no. And so uh, I'm not saying that the tenants were right, but in, a, in an incredibly sort of ironic way, they're not wrong. Yeah, in, in a way that they don't realize just exactly what they're saying, which, I mean, you see that throughout the Gospels where, where an enemy of Jesus, an enemy of the church will say something that they mean in one way, and they, they mean it falsely, but it, it ends up being true that because the son is killed, the inheritance is given, in fact, to sinners. I mean, and even I'm just thinking about the, some of the preaching that's in the book of Acts, where where Peter preaches to the very people who who saw Jesus on the cross. Some of them would have shouted, crucify him. And he tells them, you killed the son of God. You killed Jesus. And, and yet it's because of that death and his resurrection on the third day that to those very people, I mean, Peter tells them, repent and be baptized. Every one of you, this promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off. And, and precisely because of that action, God, which God took and, and made into something wonderful. I mean, I think that's the, the Psalm 118 quotation. The builders mm-hmm. rejected the stone, but it was set up as the cornerstone and that's God's doing, which is just a, I mean, it's a beautiful thing. It is. And, you know, we see this a lot of times. Um, sometimes a, a, a bad thing will happen. Um, and it is bad. Um, but as it, you know, as it says, as Paul says in Romans, you know, God uses all things for the good of those who love him. And that, that doesn't mean that those are good things, but God will still use it for good. And so in the same way, you know, I think we can, we can take a look at our lives sometimes. And we can see things that are objectively bad. You, you don't have to like those things. They are bad things, you know, um, bad things that happen to us, bad things that happen in our lives, sometimes, sometimes bad things that, that happen to our loved ones. And, and then sometimes we say things like, oh, man, you know, in the end of it, it brought me here. And I, I guess, you know, God had a plan all along. Yeah, that's true. But but generally speaking, God's plan is not send bad things to you. But what God will do is take our take our mourning and turn it into joy and take our, our weeping and turn it into laughter. Take those things that are bad and turn them into something good. And sometimes, uh, sometimes those things happen to us in a, a much more immediate and temporal way which which is I'm, I'm always thankful for but sometimes that joy is delayed but that joy is not delayed forever uh it's it's only delayed until the lord returns and when he raises the dead and he creates a new heaven and a new earth then certainly all of those things that that were that were bad will be no more forever and even those things that we take a look at and are sometimes, you know, horrified at our, our suffering for the faith or sometimes even our, not our, but, you know, martyrdom for, for the faith. Like those things, those things turn into causes for praise and rejoicing in that the Lord has overcome uh, even, even those things that we couldn't see a way through. Mm-hmm. Pastor Linnell, with that about, with that, with about five minutes left on the morning, thinking through this parable, which certainly has, as you said, plenty of law application, but also does reveal to us who God is, help us to, to wrap things up and, and from this parable, point us to that, that good news of Christ crucified and risen for us. This parable, when it was put in, 
was specifically directed and intended to speak to the religious rulers of the day and probably the difference between you know the the new christian church and the the jewish leaders and pharisees that were still going on that being said the lord is wise and he is good and that same message carries with it throughout the centuries as certainly the the church has experienced uh, leaders and people who are in charge that maybe aren't doing their job. Um, but it also applies to our lives where the Lord has placed us over a certain number of things. And maybe we haven't been the kind of tenants that we are supposed to be. But regardless of how it is that we present in our relationship with him, the Lord presents as a kind and patient and forgiving master to us. He continues to send time and time again his messengers, sometimes through brothers and sisters in Christ and sometimes through pastors who come to us with his word as his representatives that we might bear fruit. And that fruit would be repentance, a wonderful theme for our current season of Lent. And he even sends his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. And while in the parable, the tenants crucify him and, and these things, Christ has already been crucified once and for all. And because of his death, the Lord does not send a, an army of angels to smite us, but in an ironic sort of way, the tenants were at least partially right. The vineyard is ours now. We are heirs that inherited through Jesus Christ. So it is very much the case. But as we take a look at who we are and who we want our relationship with the Lord to be, we should examine our actions. We should examine the ways that we respond to God's call and to his word, whether or not we're willing to bear the fruit that is due the Lord, that we should never forget who the Lord is and that we can trust him, that we can turn to him, that he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and that through his son, Jesus Christ, we will not simply be tenants, but we will be sons and heirs with him in his kingdom forever. Such wonderful good news from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. Pastor Sean Linnell, our guest this morning. Pastor Linnell, thanks for being with us. Thanks for sharing the good news of Jesus Christ today. Always a pleasure. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharp Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Mark chapter 12, this parable, or any of the gospel according to St. Mark, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We love to hear from you. The good news is for you. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus Christ is the foundation of our faith. He is crucified, raised for us, and in him we have salvation. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.